Well, good morning, church. If you're going to be reading along on the scripture today, we will be in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. If you're going to follow along, the words will also be on the screen. But this morning, we are going to continue our sermon series, The Prayers of the King, as we examine the prayer life of our Lord God and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And we're doing this chronologically. Uh, From the beginning of the Gospel story to its end, we want to observe how Jesus prayed, what he prayed for, you know, how he prayed, what he prayed for, And above all, we want to see how God the Father answered the Son of God when he prayed. Because, again, it's very important. We have to agree on this convictionally, fundamentally, about prayer. God answers prayer. If we do not believe that, then what we just prayed about children being saved was a lie and it didn't matter. But I bet you, if we do the secret survey of the heart... Many of us will say that with our mouth, maybe not here, but abroad. It's like we pray for things and we know we're supposed to, but like, do you believe it? Does God answer prayer? Maybe not in ways you like, but does he answer prayer? And I assure you, according to the gospel, what we're going to read, how God and the Son interact, God answers prayer. And Jesus' life models perfect humanity, how man and God are supposed to relate. So be encouraged as we go through these. God answers prayer. And today's scripture reading takes place after the triumphal entry. Christ has entered Jerusalem for the last time in his earthly ministry. And the Passover was at hand, kicking off the festival of unleavened bread. If you remember your Bible history, the story of the people of God, the Passover and unleavened bread was a week-long festival, remembering the redemption of the people of God from the bondage and cruelty and slavery of the Egyptians. Passover is one of the three pilgrimage feasts ordained in the law of God three times a year on three different holidays. The people of God were supposed to assemble in Jerusalem for worship. Therefore, the population of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel at the time, it would have been, well, in today, it would be swelling as pilgrims from all over the Roman world, Jews from all over, would be coming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord their God. Psalms of ascent would be sung as they went up that long hill from the base of the mountain Zion to its top. Hymns of praise would be heard. Dancing, music, fine food and drink would be flowing. Families and clans would be reunited at one of these feasts for joyous celebration. Kind of like at Christmas time, you get together and it's joyous celebration. The smell of a multitude of sacrificial animals for sale would be pungent. And the cries of bleeding Passover lambs would fill the streets And eager children, like the ones we just saw up here, would be waiting to ask their fathers at the Passover dinner the ritual question, Ma Nishtanaha, or why is tonight different from all other nights? Why is this Passover special? Jerusalem was alive with joy as the Holy Week would soon begin. But our scripture reading this morning finds our God, King Jesus, troubled, filled with sorrow. If you can... And are willing, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 27 through 33. The word of God says this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? This is Jesus speaking. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there, and they heard it. Some said that it thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. 
And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he, Jesus, was going to die. Let us pray. Actually, Marshall, would you pray for us, please? Oh, you may be seated, by the way. So the reason our king is troubled is because Jesus knows his hour has come. That, word, that phrase, the hour is coming, is repeated numerous times in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, Jesus says, my hour is not time, but the day has not come. Phrases like that. And now we finally see, he says, it's upon me. It's right around the quarter. It's in a couple of days. For the Passover, as it says, and even in the scripture, it testifies that Passover was only a few days from this moment. And Jesus, in those few days, he would become the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He would be mocked, brutalized, and be crucified for the sins of the world and the people of God. And despite all these things that our king could pray for in that moment, he only prays for one thing that God would glorify his name, which teaches us an incredible truth, that God's glory, things like his fame, his reputation, his renown, is the most important thing to Jesus. And it's the most important thing to Jesus because God's glory is the most important thing to God himself. For everything the Lord our God does, he does it for his own Glory and namesake, which is our main point for this morning. God's glory, things like his fame, his reputation, his renown, is paramount. It's supreme. It's of first and last importance. And everything else in all of existence is secondary to God's own glory. And one commentator puts it like this. I love the way he worded this. I wish I was smart like this to word things like this way. But he says, the fact that God made and commands all living creatures to worship him is the very evidence that he alone is God. God putting himself first is the greatest testament to God truly being God. The Lord our God never, ever, 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 congregation say never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever, puts anything above himself, else whatever that thing is, is now God. If God were not to absolutely be committed to his own adoration, this would point to the fallacy of his claims that he alone deserves worship. If God placed anything above himself, he would be breaking his own first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. So church, whatever receives the most glory and adoration and praise and things like that, that is God. Therefore, the Lord our God 
does all things, and I really do mean all things, not a trick. Everything he does is for his own namesake, his own glory, his fame, his reputation, his renown, everything. And everything God does concerning his glory is good. Our God is good all the time. For the Lord Almighty only ever does good and right and just and beautiful things. And this is the heart of the prayer of Jesus, which is really revealing given his predicament. He's on the verge of his betrayal. Judas is going to betray him. He's going to be brutalized. They're going to rip his beard out. They're going to turn his back into hamburger for how bad they beat him. They're going to put a crown of thorns on his head. They're going to put a robe of purple and mock him and spit on his face and slap him and beat him. And then they're going to put a big old cross on his back, on his wounds, and say, carry your death sentence. That's what waits our king in only a few days. And he's like, God be glorified. And this leads us to our first preaching point that God's glory is paramount of first importance regardless of our predicament. God's glory is paramount regardless of your and mine and ours and the world's predicament. Let's look at verse 27 again. Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he prays, Father, glorify your name. So it's in these verses, our Lord seems to be thinking out loud his prayer options, right? He's thinking out loud, it seems. He could pray, you know, God, this hour has come upon me. I'm going to be brutalized and murdered and beaten and all that. Uh, I guess I could be praying, save me from this upcoming hour of pain and suffering. And Jesus, he seems to be thinking out loud. And he says, well, I guess, no, that's not proper, given that Jesus knows he's born for this very reason. He knows he's born to die for the sins of the world. It's prophecy. It's the story of the Bible. Before the foundation of the world, it was ordained that Christ would die for the sins of the people. And Jesus, he's accepted his calling. He's accepted God's sovereignty in this matter. So he's like, okay, I could pray that, but that's not an option. I was born for this hour. I've come to this hour. So praying for deliverance isn't an option for Jesus. This, the cross is going to happen. It's his destiny. All roads lead to the cross. So Jesus then prays for the most appropriate thing, for God to glorify himself. It's the only other option he has. And this is important to you and me because it shows us that regardless of whatever it is you and I may be going through, from Christian martyrdom, like dying for the faith, to even the good and beautiful and awesome things in life, like adopting children or getting a new house or job raises or whatever, it's always important and proper to keep a good perspective on God's glory, on his fame, on his reputation. It comes first in all things. God's glory is paramount. It comes even before our very lives. This is why the Bible is filled with exhortations, something like this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you all be doing, he goes, do it all to the glory of God. So church, think about that. Everything we do as Christians, even the trivial things like eating, going to McDonald's, Drinking, getting a Sprite, whatever it is you like to do, the trivial, even the mundane things, the eating and drinking of life, he says, is supposed to be for God's glory, his fame, his reputation, his renown. 
because God's glory is supreme. It's of first and last importance, and everything else in existence is secondary to God's fame. Everything is. So again, regardless of the circumstances you may find yourself in, whatever may be happening to you, the good, the bad, and maybe the downright evil, which in God's good providence, think of our communion sharing time. You all preached the sermon for us already. We heard the testimonies concerning why we trust in this Jesus. We know he's worthy to be trusted. Like, it was said very clearly, we're still worship. I don't, Tom, I don't even know you. And I was touched by that because it's true. We're still here trusting in the Lord. We're still here glorifying his name. That is what we're talking about this morning. That's what this sermon's about. God's name to be glorified in every and all things. And God and his great and eternal sovereignty somehow, some way has ordained that in every situation of life that you may find yourself in, he will be glorified. Somehow, some way he will. Because the Bible is a story about the Lord. And all of history is about the Lord and his dealings and his glory. The Bible is not a story about you and me. History itself is a testimony to the living God and what he does and who he is. And he is good and he is great. And we are his people. That is why we as Christians, if we have the mindset like Jesus and pray like Jesus, Father, glorify your name, we have great, great confidence because God is going to do something that's going to bring himself glory. And as we said, it's going to be for our good. God is good. He does good things. And when we pray for God to glorify himself, even if it looks terrible to our situation, like I don't like what I'm going through, do we trust that it's good and God will get glory out of it? This is kind of off the cuff right now, but I would almost say when you pray for God to glorify himself and you're praying for God's will to be done, they're virtually synonyms at this point. It's the same idea. It's the same heartbeat. God, your will be done. God, glorify yourself. So are you sick? Maybe you got cancer. Maybe you're sick right now. I'm sure there are people in the church who are sick. God's going to get glory out of it. Maybe you're poor and needy and you don't see a way out of this. God's going to get glory out of it. Are things great and life couldn't be better? God's going to get glory out of that. Church, this mindset is supposed to be normal for Christians. Supposed to be normal. Hence, it's often the first issue addressed in our older Christian confessions of faith or older catechisms, like how they teach the faith to people. The Westminster divines in the 1600s, when they were writing their, uh, their confession of faith, they put this idea, this item, as their first teaching item concerning God's glory. The very first thing people need to know when they're learning what it means to be Christian. It's the very first catechism question. They say, what is the chief end of man? Or maybe you could word it this way. Why do humans exist? That's the first question in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And their answer is man's chief end or man's purpose, why you personally exist, why I exist, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is why we humans exist, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Therefore, church, whatever situation you are going to find yourself in, whether they are the heartbreaking things where you're told that you're going to have to decide whether your wife lives or dies on a respirator and have to make that decision, 
Or maybe you get the diagnosis. Or maybe something great happens. A child is born. Or you get a raise or whatever. You don't know. Have that mindset. Be praying, God, how, is, how are you going to get glory out of this? How are you going to work this out? What are you going to do, Lord? But I trust you. And when you pray like that, you are praying the will of God. Because the Bible promises that God hears and answers prayers and answers the prayers of his people when we pray according to his good will. And it's always God's good will that he is glorified in every, any, and all situations of life. That's always God's will. So you always want to have a safe prayer to pray? Pray for God to be glorified. Pray for his will to be done. Something like that. And we see God answer Jesus' prayer because of this. Because God answers prayer that's according to his will. Therefore, we see even now, the Father answers the Son. And he says this to him. He answers Jesus' prayers with these words. He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And church, God's glory, his fame, his reputation, his renown, it's supreme, it's paramount, it's of first and last importance, and everything else in all existence is secondary to it. And God's answers to Jesus is in context of Jesus going to the cross, standing in the shadow of it. It's looming over him. And it shows us something very important about why God answers Jesus in this way. Jesus knows his death is imminent. His betrayal is soon coming to pass. He knows what's in front of him. We haven't even reached the Garden of Gethsemane yet, and already these are like the birth pains of the cross. And he's praying for God's glory already, and God answers him in a very powerful way. As Jesus stands in the shadow of the cross, this shows us something very important. God's glory is revealed or most clearly seen or understood in his acts of redemption, how he saves his helpless people. God's glory is revealed in redemption, how he saves his people. God's answer to Jesus' prayer for him to glorify himself includes two parts, a past and a future element. By saying he has glorified it in the past takes us way, way back in the story of the people of God. The very reason all the people were gathering in Jerusalem at that moment for the Passover. Long ago, <coughs> long ago, our ancestors were in bondage to the evil Egyptians. And the atrocities and slavery and painful labor our people endured was great. So great was the oppressions of the Egyptians that they even ordered the people of God to throw their children in the Nile and have them killed. The order was by Pharaoh, the false god king. He said, when the children are born, order the Hebrews to throw their children into the Nile. That's the type of oppression we're talking about. Forced infanticide. Forced brick and mortar labor. Backbreaking labor. It was not good. The people of God were oppressed. And when they cried out, God heard their misery. And he answered them. And he unleashed his plan to redeem them to save them from the evil Egyptians and from their false god, King Pharaoh. Hear what the Lord says to Pharaoh through the prophet Moses, Exodus 9. It's our history lesson of where we came from. God says, Thus says the Lord, 
the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me, not you, Pharaoh. You're not God. They're going to serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, the Egyptians, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth, Pharaoh, you and all your people. I could have wiped you out long ago to free my people. But for this purpose, why I'm letting this happen, he's even telling Pharaoh why he's allowing Pharaoh to dominate the people of God at the time. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Yet you are still exalting yourself against my people, and yet you refuse to let them go. So the plagues intensified. Remember our, our Sunday school, our children's stories, right? The frogs, the gnats, all that stuff, the Nile turned to blood, those types of things. It gets worse for Pharaoh, and they end up culminating in the final plague, the Passover, the death of the firstborn of man and beast happened. The story continues. It says, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Can you picture the chaos, the terror, the confusion that would have been like? In the middle of the night, you just hear screaming from every house as children or even young adults are being pulled out just dead. Nobody knows what's going on. It would have been a frightful sight, but the people of God were spared from this judgment. It was their redemption. Church, the lives of the Egyptians was the price for freedom for the people of God. And the Lord Almighty was willing to pay it. He was willing to have the Egyptians die. Their children, their beasts, the firstborn of everybody, to free his people from slavery and from oppression. He destroyed the nation of Egypt to save his people. For the Lord is serious about his chosen people and protecting them and prospering them. But Pharaoh's hatred for God and for the people intensified. We know the story. He pursued the Israelites to the Red Sea and the people of God got cornered. Also in God's plan though, the Red Sea was to their front. The Egyptians were behind in their armies, their chariots. They were desperate. They were scared. And the people of God cried out again. The story continues. Exodus 14. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his army, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the great I am, when I have gotten glory over the false king, Pharaoh, the one that claims to be God. I will destroy Pharaoh and his armies is what God is saying. So the whole world will know there is no one like me. And the Egyptians, 
They did as God had prophesied and ordained. They pursued the people through the Red Sea, and God brought the waters back down on them like a flood, glorifying himself just as he said he would. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people of God feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. Church, this is how God glorified himself in the past, through the Passover and the Exodus. And as you read the Bible from cover to cover, people, all people alike, pagan to Jew, they remember the Exodus story. They cite it as reason as why the God of the Hebrews is powerful and not to be messed with. You read book of Joshua, when they go into the promised land, Rahab reports to the spies, you remember? She says, we've heard what happened. And that was a generation ago. She's like, we knew what happened to the Egyptians. Their, their economy was destroyed. All those people have died. Like, we know what happened to them. And we know that God has called you. Like, the people of the land knew that. And that's what God's intention was. So everybody would know who he is, and these are my people. Do not mess with them. And it is why the people gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate in John chapter 12 when Jesus had this prayer. But as God said when he answered Jesus' prayer, he would also glorify his name yet again. For a new Passover was upon the people in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Soon the Son of God would be slain as a lamb for the sins of the world, redeeming the people of God once and for all. The life of Jesus would be traded for the lives of the people of God, and the new covenant would be instituted. The bondage of sin would be broken, and the people's greatest enemy, the false god king Satan, would be defeated forever. This is what Jesus meant when he said in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Crucifixion. <coughs> Sorry, that went backwards. But church, it is in this way, God was going to be glorified again. And his name would be great among the nations for this glorious gospel of the new covenant. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ is to be preached until the ends of the earth. And ever since that day, 2,000 years ago, when God glorified himself again, through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been doing that. We've been proclaiming the name of the Lord, glorifying him in song, going to the furthest reaches of the world to tell people the wonderful and mighty acts of God. We are still glorifying him today, God fulfilling his promise to himself that he would be glorified. But sadly... This glorious gospel is not received by all. Which leads us to our final preaching point. God's glory is hidden from hardened hearts. God's glory, his fame, his reputation, his renown, is hidden from hardened hearts. When confronted with God's glory and the truth of the gospel, why do people reject it. 
There's no real logical reasoning behind it. The evidence is plain. The verdict is clear. Yet when people are confronted with their sin of violating God's law and their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, they still deny they're guilty. God's law says keep the Sabbath rest. How many neglect the Lord's day and care nothing for the gathering of the church and the worship of the one true God and his glory? God's law says honor your father and your mother. How many of us have disobeyed and despised our parents? God's law says you shall not murder. Christ elaborates. He says, when you have hatred in your heart for your brother, it's, it's murder already. God's law says you should not commit adultery, be sexually immoral. And Christ says that those who even look lustfully have committed adultery already in your heart. God's law says you shall not steal. Who's never stolen before? God's law says you shall not lie. Y'all guilty. Self-included, right? God's law says you shall not covet or be jealous of your neighbor's possessions or their position in life. Who has never envied or desired another's life, despising what God and the good gifts he's given them? God's law says his name is holy and to be honored. How many, even in the church, use Christ's name in evil ways and blaspheme God? God's law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, body, spirit, strength. The entire person, you're to love the Lord your God. Yet we love our own desires more than the Lord. Church, you, me, all of us, we sin so greatly. And even when our goodness is put to the test by God's law, which is what its purpose is, it says the law reveals our sin, how many people still ignore the truth of who and what they are, that they're sinful, guilty people, and they still trust in their own goodness. And in doing so, they are missing God's glory in Christ. They're like the crowd that heard God answer Jesus' prayer. Verse 29, it says, Jesus prayed. The Father answered, and the crowd says, that stood there, <coughs> they heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. I mean, guys, listen to their words. God answered Jesus audibly, and they missed it. God was speaking, and they missed it. They missed the declaration concerning the glory that the Father is going to have through the crucifixion of his Son for their forgiveness. Why are people like this? Even today, why do not all people instantly, positively respond to the glory in Christ when the gospel is preached? Because gospel literally means good news, right? It's the good news that you can be forgiven of your sins, which you're clearly guilty of. And it's a promise of eternal life and peace with the creator and a true relationship with him. There's so much good news in the gospel. Why is God's glory rejected? Well, the Bible tells us why. It says the word of the cross, the preaching of the gospel, what we're doing right now, the apostle says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Church, a hard and unbelieving heart is the evidence of spiritual deadness of those who are perishing. What other parts of the scripture, they describe this person as dead in their sin, as a corpse, and a corpse does nothing but rot and decay and lay limp and stink. 
The Bible says that's those people who are outside of Christ, who haven't trusted the Son of God yet, which was everybody in this room at one point, or maybe that's still some of you right now. So what's the solution? Because as we just read, those outside of Christ, they don't believe because of the hard heart, and they can't believe because they're spiritually dead. What are we going to do? What's the solution? The people are stuck in their unbelief. The solution is that we need God's grace and mercy to intervene. And that is why we continue to do this right now, to preach Christ to people. Because the word says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. And maybe, and just maybe, God will do a miracle and remove that hard heart and grant them faith. Because he says he will. The prophet Ezekiel, foretelling this new covenant reality, he says, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you, and I'll remove from you your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you alive like Pinocchio. I'm going to make you a real boy. I'm going to make you a real person to me. That's kind of what he's saying. That's the reality every human being needs, this new heart. And the New Testament apostles, they call this prophecy, they call it regeneration. You may have heard that word used from the pulpit. Regeneration, when God awakens a dead heart and grants them faith in who Jesus is and what he's done. Ephesians 2.8 explains this so clearly. It says, for by God's grace, his infinite kindness, his compassion, his goodness and mercy, grace. It says, by God's grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Church, the very fact we have believed and can believe it's because of God's grace and kindness to his people. God is kind to his enemies, and he desires that all people repent and come to a knowledge of the faith. And even this, even this is for his own glory. Hear what Isaiah says concerning salvation of sinners. He says, I, I am he, the Lord speaking, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Think about that. God says, I'm going to forgive you for me, for my glory, for my name, for my fame, for my reputation, for my renown. And maybe that's you today, right now, whether online, maybe in this room. Maybe you're the one needing a new heart today. Maybe even now, your heart is being stirred from what we're talking about. Maybe even now, this reality is opening, your eyes are opening to it. Maybe this idea of like, you know what? I can be forgiven. I have done wrong. And I can have peace with God. I can have a true relationship with the creator of the universe. That's what this is all about. Yes. And maybe that's you now. And if that's you, if there's something in you screaming, listen to what's being said, that's the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart. Do not ignore that. This may be the last time God offers you a chance to be saved. You don't know. But God is ready to glorify himself even in this moment. So if that's you today, right now, if that's you, will you glorify God this morning by accepting his gospel call? Will you repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because God's glory, his fame, 
his reputation, his renown, is paramount. It's supreme. It's of first and last importance, and everything in the universe comes secondary to it. Church, we're going to glorify God in a moment. We're going to pray, and the altar will be opened. What areas of your life do you need to cry out to God for him to glorify himself in? Because he promises he will. He promises he will because that's praying the will of God. And it's always God's will for him to be glorified. So we're going to pray. The altar will be opened. And we're going to see what God's going to do. Father God, we come before you as your people. And our heart's desire is for you to be glorified even now. You answered Christ audibly that you will glorify it again. And even if you don't speak audibly now, we know and can trust your word that says you will continue to glorify it. You will make yourself known. You will exalt your son. You will exalt the spirit. You will show us who you are. You will do mighty deeds. And Lord, as your people, we made that good confession and communion. We trust you. We trust that what Jesus did is sufficient for our sins. And now we're looking for you, Lord, to lead us, to guide us, and to glorify you and show us how we can glorify you more in this world. Do great things even now, Lord Jesus, for your namesake. We pray.